What was the message being conveyed in the play here? The answer, the Savior of the world was born 2,000 years ago. Nothing more, nothing less. And even before he was born, he existed. It was announced by the prophets hundreds and even thousands of years prior the manner in which the Son of God would come into the world. Just to explain what prophecy is, because the Bible is filled with prophecy. It's God's seal of authenticity that his word is true. People say, well, how do you know that the Bible is true? One of the answers is prophecy. And let me explain that. That's the ability of God to see the future. God stands right now outside of the time domain. He sees everything in the past, everything in the present, and he knows all the things that are going to happen in the future. When we get into the book of Revelation, we'll see the culmination of human history and what happens after that. It's already been written. It's already been determined. So when God sends his uh, people of God to write down prophecy, 100 years, 200 years, 300 years later, all those words that the prophet spoke will come true. And we have the benefit of seeing what they said hundreds and even thousands of years ago. The Hebrew prophet Micah, written 700 years prior to Jesus' incarnation. And what that means is incarnation. When the eternally existent Son of God came down in the form of a, of a person, was born as a babe in the manger, he always existed. It's not like the Son of God was just born 2,000 years ago. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit have always existed. But there was a time where it was expedient for the Son of God to come into human history, interrupt our history, and save us from our sins. This scripture, Micah 5.2, tells us first that the Messiah would be born basically in a little suburb, narrowing down the odds of who could stand up and claim to be the Messiah. Bethlehem Ephrathah was a little suburb outside of Jerusalem. Not to be confused, Micah tells us, with the other Bethlehem that was in Zebulun further narrowing down the odds. And when you think about what Herod, Herod the Great's edict to kill all the little babies uh, to and under in Bethlehem and all its surrounding districts, it's, it further narrows down the possibility that anybody could have fulfilled that scripture. The second thing that Micah tells us is that the Messiah existed before time began. Again, he came from the, his eternal domain into our temporal domain where time exists. The Hebrew prophet Daniel, 925, 500 years prior to Jesus' incarnation. Let me just think about the magnitude of 500 years prior to an event happening, it being foretold. Our country didn't exist 300 years ago, as we know it. Our nation, the United States, didn't exist. It wasn't that long ago. And in 100 years, none of us will be here because of our life expectancy. So think about 500 years prior to Jesus' birth, this scripture was foretold. And it spells out the exact day that Jesus would present himself as the king in the triumphal entry. It's kind of hard to fake when you'll come out of the womb. There's a lot of charlatans out there, a lot of scam artists. There's a lot of things that people fake to get your money separated from you or to get you to follow them. But one thing that you can't fake is when you're going to come out of the womb. Who are you going to be born to? What family are you going to be born into? And the time of your birth. Nobody else could have even fulfilled a handful of these prophecies. Genesis 49.10, written a whopping 1,800 years prior to Jesus' birth, spells out the following. The political problem between the Roman ruler Herod Archelaus and the Jews and the subsequent removing of the Jewish scepter at the time of the Messiah's birth. 
And what that meant, among other things, is that when the Jews were taken over by the uh, Babylonians, by the uh, Medo-Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, for for those of you who know history, they were conquered, but they were allowed to continue day-to-day operations, the scepter, so to speak, for for many years uh, being dominated by these pagan nations until the time of the first century where the Romans finally took their sceptorship away from them, the ability to adjudicate capital cases. That's why the religious leaders had to go before Pontius Pilate and demand that he be crucified because they weren't allowed to do that anymore. They couldn't do that. But this is what it says in Genesis 49.10. And then you say, wait a minute. In 1800 B.C., who ever heard of the Romans? What was Rome? It didn't exist. Herod Archelaus. Some people today still don't know who Herod Archelaus is. Or the chosen people under the yoke of the pagans. People would have said at that time, that's impossible. But that's the beauty of prophecy. Only God can do it, and it only happens in this book. When I was in college, I took a course called uh, Statistical Reasoning. And for those of you who are good with math, it's like winning, winning the lottery. They say, these are your odds. You have one in a million chances. As that number gets bigger, as one times ten to the, and there's a little exponent on the top, gets bigger, you get more zeros after the number. There's a, a statistical probability that something won't happen as the number gets bigger. And as the number gets too big, there's a statistical impossibility. And only a handful of these scriptures show a statistical improbability. And then as, the, as, the, as the, um, the prophecies that are fulfilled get greater and greater, it's an impossibility that only one person only one person could have fulfilled that. The Hebrew prophet Haggai in 2.7, written 500 years prior to Jesus' incarnation, tells us this. It not only spells out that the Messiah would visit the temple, which wasn't rebuilt at the time of the Jewish prophet Haggai, but gives reference to, me, to Jesus as the Messiah, or I'm sorry, as the Messiah as deity. In other words, being equivalent with God. So in other words, Haggai was writing between the time of the first temple, which was destroyed by the Babylonians, and the second temple, which had to be rebuilt. He was writing in between that time, and he said the desire of all nations, a euphemism for the Messiah, would, would, would fulfill, his glory would fill that temple, meaning the second temple. Today, if you look at Jerusalem, there is no more temple, except there's one wall left, a part of that city, the Wailing Wall. That's the only thing that's left after the Romans destroyed it in 70 AD. But we are living in the time today that we're between the second and the third temple. See, Revelation 11 tells us that the temple will be rebuilt. There's instructions to go rise and measure the temple of God. And people who don't know the scripture would say to me, that's crazy. There's nothing over there. There's the Muslims and the Jews, and they're fighting with each other. There's no way that temple will be rebuilt. But the Bible says it will. You see, that's the beauty of God's word. God takes an impossible situation, says, watch me do this, and then he does it. And we say, wow, we scratch our heads and say, I would have never guessed he would have done it that way. And that's the beauty of his word, to prove that his word is authentic. So my question is, did I pique your interest? For those of you who are visiting, we'll get more into some of these details next Sunday. But let me give you an illustration of prophecy using aeronautics, right? Space travel and all that kind of stuff. You know, if you study how spacecraft re-enter the Earth's atmosphere, you think, well, they just kind of kind of fall, fall down and just come in and land in the ocean or wherever. It's not that simple. There's all kinds of mathematical equations and all kinds of intricacy, intricacies that these engineers go through and check and recheck many times because they can't screw it up. 
And what happens is as the spacecraft starts to re-enter our atmosphere, there's overshooting and undershooting. If they come in too steep, the friction from the atmosphere is so great that it would burn up the spacecraft and the astronauts in it before they hit the Earth. If the angle coming back into the atmosphere is too shallow, it'll skip off our atmosphere and go back out into space again, causing a problem with fuel. Okay? Follow me here. The last thing is that uh, there's, there's like a window, too, that the spacecraft has to re-enter the atmosphere because if it's the wrong window, it could end up, as they come through the atmosphere, they could land in hostile territory, another country that's not favorable to your, your spacecraft. So when you think about a spacecraft re-entering the Earth's atmosphere, there's a small window of time, opportunity, location, equations, etc. that that spacecraft has to enter, angles, okay? And that's what I liken to prophecy. There's only one person who could have fulfilled all these prophecies. The more you study the Bible, the more you realize this was, this is the Son of God. Because nobody else could have fulfilled these. People today can't claim to be the Messiah. They're, at, they're in the wrong time domain. They're in the wrong location. Okay? It just doesn't work. And we serve a big God, and he can do big things. In my quest for truth 15, 20 years ago, I searched all the major books. I have Korans at home. Book of Mormon, the New World Translation. And you know what? They don't have that prophecy. They don't have that seal of authenticity. Worse, some of them have them, but they're failed. Deuteronomy 18, which is the canon for prophecy, all the way back in the Torah, all the way back in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 18 tells us that if, if the person is a prophet of God, every word from his mouth will come to pass. If one word does not come to pass, he is the false prophet. And in those days, the remedy for that was they killed you. If you claimed to speak for, for God and you were wrong and you were not from God and found to be a charlatan, the law said that you, you should be stoned to death. So the point is, today people make prophecies willy-nilly and, and they're not fulfilled and they just don't think anything of it. But the Bible contains over 300 prophecies, especially in the Old Testament, that have been fulfilled by the Messiah, Jesus. What are some of the things we saw in this musical? Well, let's go over them. The first thing, the, the angels appeared to regular everyday people like you and me. Last year, we, sure, we saw more of the shepherds. Uh, people were dressing up as shepherds. These shepherds, as we went through the book of Luke, we found that they were the lower class in society. They were unimportant to society, but the angels came to them to announce the Messiah's birth. This year, we saw Mary, uh, the young girl who portrayed Mary, did a great job. Mary was a young Jewish girl, she was humble, and she was frightened at the angel so much so that he had to reassure her. The actor in the play who played Gabriel did a great job of exemplifying that. I don't know if you noticed that. What about you and me? Average, everyday people that God sent salvation for. Do you think you're a bad person? you think you have skeletons in your closet? Do you think you're not good enough to come to him? Good. You're not. And we all have skeletons in our closet. That's why we need a savior. You've come to the right place. Not to this church, but you've come to the right place in your heart to say, I want to pray. I want to read God's word. I want to see, you know, what is he trying to say to me? What is this relationship thing? Okay? It's good for all of us. The message you saw of, of, um, uh, in the musical of Christmas is not, how many toys we can buy our kids or how we can overindulge ourselves or our spouses or how many companies can separate, for your separate you from your money and how far they can put you in debt this time of the year. 
and how much we should worry about it in January, January when the credit card bill comes in. Or to prove how generous we are this time of the year. We should be generous all year long. If we, if we just say, well, in December, I'm gonna, I, I, it's the season of giving. I feel that, that tugging in my heart. And we're not generous the first 11 months of the year. All those people out there who, who are destitute, who are poor, who need a hand, what are we going to do? Uh, withhold our blessings from them until December? That's not right. We should be generous all year, all year long. The message of, of Christmas is in John 3, 16 to 17. John says, or Jesus says, in the book of John, he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever should believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And verse 17 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him, Jesus, his Son, the world might be saved. That's the message that you need to leave here with today. In the musical, the song, For Unto Us, comes straight out of Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, which was written 700 years prior to Jesus' incarnation. It defines God giving his Son in the form of the Messiah, the deity of the Messiah, and the Messiah's future monarchal reign from now. So God gave us his son and salvation. And what can we possibly offer in return? As you heard in the musical, the song was titled, quote, I'll give him my heart that the kids sang. The lyrics go something like this. What can you offer that's fit for a king? The answer is, just give him your heart. And how do we give him our heart? Well, what does God's word say? Jesus said in John 14:23 through 24, he said, anyone who loves me will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words and the word which you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. And I try to express to people, you talk to people on the street and they say, well, I have my own relationship with God. Really? You have your own relationship with God. Well, what does God say in his word? Jesus says that there's two groups of people in the world, not black and white, not rich and poor, not um, from that side of the fence or this side of the fence. There's two types of people in the world, Jesus says, those who love me, and I want to be in that category, and those who do not love me. And Jesus takes a stand and says, the ones who love me are the ones that follow my word. And my question is, my exhortation, my encouragement, my challenge to you is, if we haven't read his word, how do we know that we're following in it, and how do we know that we love him? It's just logical. I don't want to be in the other camp. Read his word. Jesus also said in uh, John 15, verses 5 through 6, also expressed in the, in the musical, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire. The only way to be saved is to abide in Christ. The only way to be fruitful is also to abide in Christ. If Jesus is the vine and we are the branches, the vine gives its water, it gives its nutrients to the branches. So the branches could produce fruit. We're the branches. And the fruit is what we do with our lives. But if we're not abiding in the vine, the Bible also says that if the branch doesn't abide in the vine, it's good for nothing except to be cut off from the vine, to be withered and thrown into the, into the fire. And you know what that's a picture of. So 
We need to abide in Christ to be fruitful in our lives. If I produce any fruit and you say, wow, you know, you're a talented guy or you're this or you study a lot, it's not me. It's Christ in me. Because as I, as I go away from Christ, it's noticeable in my walk. It's noticeable in my attitude. And it's the same thing with everybody here. We need to abide in the vine. We hear a lot of rejoice in the Christmas message. Why? Because on our own, we can't stand in front of a holy God and expect to be allowed into his glorious presence and his abode. I may not be super intelligent, but I'm smart enough to know that I'm not going to stand before a holy God who's a perfect God, who created everything that we see and try to talk my way or manipulate my way into heaven. It doesn't work. I carry the stain of sin with me. And Jesus died so that stain of sin would be removed when I believe in him. Rejoice. Why? Because God loved us enough to provide a savior. He loved us enough to provide his, the son of God into a, a humble means as a babe in the manger, okay, to grow up and lead a sinless life and die a substitutionary death on the cross to shed his blood for the remission of sins. And the seal of authenticity of that was on the third day he rose again in fulfillment of the scriptures, carried out a 40-day ministry on the earth, and was ascended into heaven to be at the right hand of the Father to, reign, to come back and reign in glory. And that's the message of the gospel. And that's something that we need to rejoice in. We need to rejoice in. Even Mary in her Magnificat, Luke 147, Magnificat anima mea dominum, which means my soul magnifies the Lord. And she says, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Mary needed a Savior as we all do. But what does a Savior do? A Savior saves us from something. That's what a Savior does. In this case, our Savior is Jesus, the ultimate Savior. He saves us from our sin and ultimately from the suffering of hell if we choose Jesus as our Lord and Savior. So this is the bottom line. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. Repent. Lord, I've lived my life for this long, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, 60 years. It's never too late. I see that your way is right and my self-directed way is wrong. I want to repent. I want to humble myself and say, I was wrong. Lord, I, I ask that you forgive me for my sins. I trust Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I want to turn the corner. I want to change direction and start moving towards you and stop moving towards my way. Then you become justified. That's all it takes. You have to humble yourself, though, to repent. And then you're justified. In that moment, when you believe on Jesus as your Lord and Savior, God declares you righteous. Now you're standing before the throne of God. You know, like the kids coming up to the stage, they're all kind of timid. Well, I would be timid standing up towards the throne of God. But see, when I believe in Jesus as my Lord and Savior, God has, has, has justified me. He has declared me righteous. Now, when I go up before God, he doesn't see all the sins I committed. He sees that I believed on Jesus Christ and what he did for me and that now I carry his reputation and I can walk. Hebrews tells us that we can boldly come before the throne of God to obtain mercy and grace in the time that we need it. Boldly. Imagine going before the throne room of, of God. In the old days, in the old monarchies, uh, I believe it was, it was Esther who was talked into by Mordecai to go up before her husband, who was the king. And you would think she'd just go up to her husband and say, hey, hubby, how's it going? But she, the, even the queens in those days couldn't go before the throne room of the king without being asked and request under penalty of their own death. Death. Now, think about the master of the universe, how great he is, that great monarch. We shouldn't take it something so lightly, but we're justified when we believe in Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And then we live a life of sanctification, which we talked about last Sunday, which 
every day, every year, as we walk with Christ, we become better. We become more separate from the world, separate from our sins, set apart unto him. Sanctification. So the question this Christmas season is to ask, not, you know, how many toys am I going to get or what can I buy for myself? But the answer, the question is, am I saved? And if not, how can I receive the gift God gave us 2,000 years ago? Let's pray. Sin.